Okay. Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's webinar. I'm Shannon Miller, and I'm the MARCOM coordinator for the municipal segment here at YSI. YSI has designed and manufactured sensors, instruments, and solutions for water quality monitoring for over 70 years now. Uh, today, we're doing a presentation on YSI instrumentation and wastewater applications. And joining me today are my fellow team members, Ben Barker, Instrumentation and Application Engineer, and Steve Wartendike, Regional Sales Manager. Uh, ben has worked at YSI for over three years, and he provides application support and conducts technical trainings. Um, and Steve has also worked at YSI for over three years and has over 30 years of experience in the water industry uh, with roles in product management, sales, and business development. Uh, we're glad everyone could be here today. So please let us know in the chat if we experience any audio issues during the webinar. That does happen sometimes. And we set aside some time to address questions at the end. So feel free to ask those as we go along in the sidebar. Um, also, please note that the webinar is being recorded, and we will share a link to the recording post-webinar. Um, now, without further ado, I'll turn it over to Ben. Thank you, Shannon. So uh, during the webinar today, uh, we're going to go over common applications for YSI instrumentation in wastewater. We'll cover the wastewater process from inlet to effluent, briefly describing each process, focusing on where YSI online sensors, portables, and lab equipment can be used to monitor and control particular processes. Now there's a lot to cover here in the next hour, so once we get into the applications, we're actually going to be moving pretty quickly. So unfortunately, we won't be able to get to every type of process, but these are the, uh, are the topics that we will be covering today. For each topic, we'll, we will give a brief description of the process and what it does, what analytical parameters can be used in the application, and then we'll go through an example of what the application can look like. So please bear with me. On the next few slides, I will be introducing the YSI instrumentation that will be covered in the context of their application. So it will go fairly quickly, and then we'll jump into the applications. And on this slide is what we'll primarily be talking about today is IQ SensorNet applications. For those that don't know, IQ SensorNet is a plant-wide monitoring system for key analytical process parameters. A network of sensors and modules distributed across a wastewater or water resource uh, recovery facility uh, tie into a single system, which brings all of the data back to a single location for output to the facility SCADA system. The data they are getting with IQ SensorNet ensures they are running as efficiently as possible and meeting their treatment goals. In addition to top-of-the-line instrumentation, IQ SensorNet provides a unique networking system allowing for up to 20 parameters measured on a single network. Also, our, our all-in-one power and communication cable results in less controllers, power drops, and communication wiring. This also allows for maximum savings on large projects and provides a ton of flexibility in laying out the system. And here are the top of the line sensors that we will be talking about. IQ SensorNet has uh, sensors for all the major process control parameters and more, uh, such as pH, ORP, TSS, turbidity, DO, ammonia, nitrate, sludge level, uh, a fleet of UV-Vis sensors, and uh, a few wet chemistry analyzers for ortho-P and ammonium. When going through each of the applications, we'll be discussing where each of these sensors can be used to control and monitor, or to control and monitor the process. 
In addition, I will mention where Wi-Fi portables and laboratory equipment are frequently used for a particular application. We have two lines of portables in the YSI arsenal now. We have the Pro Plus uh, from the Pro Series line, which has been around for quite a while now. Uh, I even myself use the Pro Plus frequently uh, back in my college days, which is about 10 years ago now. Since then, YSI has upgraded and released the Digital Series, which as the name implies, uses digital communication with the sensors instead of analog, and provides a number of big upgrades, such as an improved selection of sensors, new display, even a few different options between the Pro Solo, Pro Swap, and Pro DSS. In, it, in addition, YSI's laboratory line has some newer additions that fit right into wastewater laboratories, such as a new line of auto titrators and our multi-lab, which is the perfect BOD instrument. Speaking of our portables and labs, I'd like to briefly plug a sale going on through the end of June for 20% off. So if you have some extra budget to spend and want to upgrade your portable and lab equipment, uh, please go to YSI.com to see all of the options and just use the code SUMMER20 when you check out. Okay, enough about the instrumentation for, uh, for a minute. Uh, but before we're getting into applications, let's first answer an important question. Why do water resource recovery facilities need instrumentation? Well, analytical instrumentation fills several needs for wastewater operators, which usually fall under one of these four categories. First, we have process efficiency. Instrumentation can tell operators how effectively they're removing contaminants like BOD, ammonium, and nitrate from the water. Is the, is the process accomplishing what it is designed to do? If not, how can they improve or fix it? In order to solve problems or improve, you first need to be able to measure it. Next, we have reducing energy. Using process control, our instrumentation can directly control certain processes based on our sensors readings. This can help save money by reducing the energy output to run equipment, such as aeration blowers or a UV system. Process control usually requires online instrumentation, such as IQ SensorNet. Instrumentation can also help alleviate maintenance costs, so usually meaning it can allow lab staff or operators to work more efficiently. For example, upgrading from doing ammonium grab samples to having an online AMOLIT sensor can help save operators many hours in conducting those samples. And then finally, we have permit requirements which is always a big driver for facilities to purchase instrumentation. Water resource recovery facilities are sometimes required to have instrumentation for monitoring, but often they just want instrumentation to ensure that they are below their limits. And then they can make process adjustments if they aren't. Most commonly, lab and portable equipment is used to monitor for permit requirements, but online instrumentation is increasingly being used for this purpose as well. And now I will throw it over to Steve to, be, to begin the application section with inlet and pretreatment. Steve, are you there? I am here. I am just uh, getting screen sent over. Can you see it now? Yep. All righty. Okay. So, um, what we're going to talk about is we're going to go through each of the uh, treatment step processes and uh, talk a little bit about the instrumentation that are used in those processes. So uh, typically what you're going to see is you're going to see three different reasons why parameters are being measured in a, in a treatment plan. So it's going to be either compliance, uh, things that are regulated by the EPA or state governing agencies, 
um, uh, or there's going to be kind of an early warning upset condition that you're going to look at. Um, and that's, uh, like it says, it's to give you an idea something bad's about to happen. And then uh, last, we're going to talk about um, efficiency or process control. So those are the main reasons we're using instruments. And as we go through each step, we'll kind of describe uh, how these uh, instruments are being used in, in that sort of context. Um, so first, we're going to start with the uh, inlet or the pretreatment stage. Um, and this is where untreated wastewater from the collection system is received into the plant. So in this, in this stage, a series of physical separation steps remove large debris and heavy solids and water using screens and grit chambers and things like that. As uh, for the parameters that are used, so for compliance, generally we're looking at P, pH and TDS. Um, uh, there can be some uh, early warning detections like pH, TDS, solids, and BOD. Um, uh, and then finally, for efficiency and process control, we're looking at that BOD load coming into the plant. Um, as we, uh, depending on the instrument or the uh, industries that are discharging into the treatment plant, that's going to really kind of dictate what kinds of instruments you want to see for early detection and compliance and typically a process control BOD. You want to understand that load because that's going to help you manage the plant uh, better downstream. Um, in this example, here's an example of, of kind of a typical uh, application. So we have uh, suspended solids and TDS. They're in, in an inlet side stream, and they're mounted directly into the pipe with these PVC insertion mounts. Um, TSS is providing early warning of slug loadings from a meat processor, in this case. And TDS is helping to identify causes of excursions of chloride discharge limits. Um, uh, I've seen a lot of different applications or, or uh, mounting options at the inlet. Sometimes they're dropped into a channel, and sometimes they're put into these side streams. So, right. So now we kind of move on to the um, primary treatment. Um, this is kind of our, our uh, primary settling tanks. Um, and what's going on here is we are removing as much organics and inorganic solids as possible. So this is usually do, uh, done through either these large tanks or fine screens, but the purpose is uh, to get a liquid suitable for downstream biological treatment. Um, the parameters that are typically measured here um, are solid, sludge, sludge, ammonia, and BOD. And you can kind of see we are Moving past compliance issues, uh, we've got a little TSS kind of upset early warning issues if the um, uh, if the clarifiers aren't properly functioning, and then we're looking at uh, process control is primarily what our uh, our focus is now. As we move into the plant, process control becomes more and more important. So here we're looking at sludge blanket, uh, total solids, ammonias, and BODs. All right, so um, as we move into uh, secondary treatment, this is uh, uh, really where most of the instrumentation is, is happening and most of the process control is happening uh, from an instrumentation perspective. So we're removing biological matter um, uh, in the treatment process in the secondary treatment. So it's generally called the secondary treatment process. 
Um, and there's usually kind of aeration tanks, uh, which I see mostly. Um, but there's also a lot of trickling filters followed by another settling tank. We see a lot of those types of, of plants out there as well. So the activated sludge portion of this stage requires the plant to create this optimal environment for nitrifying bacteria to grow. And the bacteria are removing or converting BODs and ammonias from the water. Um, the water quality parameters are very important at this stage because achieving an um, and maintaining the uh, best environment for the bacteria is difficult and it requires a lot of monitoring to control correctly. So we're basically using all these kind of chemical analyzers to control um, biological processes. Um, the uh, important parameters here are dissolved oxygen, ammonia, um, solids, nitrates, ORP, and sludge level. And each of these parameters can be utilized to monitor and control a biological and nutrient removal um, type of system. So um, there are a lot of different kinds of control schemes um, in this part of the plant. Uh, the simplest and the, and the most prevalent is, is dissolved oxygen aeration control. So here we're setting a, um, uh, a dissolved oxygen set point and we're gonna control the blowers to that set point. Typically, we're trying to maintain around two parts per million DO, um, uh, and that's to kind of make sure that no matter what's hitting the plant, we're taking care of that um, uh, nitrification conversion. So um, even with something as simple as this, as just trying to maintain the DO at two parts per million, you can actually start to achieve energy savings. Because um, uh, in the past, you know, it'd be pretty much, you know, full on, um, you know, who cares what the DO is, we're just going to run the blowers at max and that'll kind of take care of things. And that process uses a lot of energy. So now we're, we're using um, DO probes to actually control that process. Um, uh, YSI has optical DO probes. They're very accurate and reliable and require very minimal maintenance. Um, and um, uh, again, there's, uh, uh, there's the online version, which we're talking about in the plant here, and there's also uh, portable handheld versions that are used uh, to kind of spot check throughout the plant, look at different parts of the basin, uh, and make sure that um, uh, that you understand what's happening uh, throughout the basin. You might be using the online one to set a control point too, um, but uh, the lab instrument is also very, very important, the portable one, sorry. So um, here's kind of a typical example of what a DO aeration control looks like um, in kind of uh, what a, uh, a YSI 2020 IQ sensor net system looks like. So we've got the main controller and then we've got um, a series of um, uh, uh, power and communication lines running to these junction boxes throughout the basin and we're dropping probes off of there. We're dropping DO off of here uh, at various spots. Um, uh, some places will start to add ORP on here, but if you're just thinking about a primary dissolved oxygen, dissolved oxygen aeration control example, this is a fine example for what that looks like. So the other uh, way to control um, the uh, secondary treatment is uh, ammonia-based aeration control. And this is gaining a lot of uh, support because um, now we can use 
ammonia, we can look at that load of ammonia coming in, and we can further trim our DO sensors so that we're not over aerating when we don't need to over aerate. Um, and there are many times of day where the DO set point does not need to be at two parts per million. If the concentration is low, then the DO can be low. Um, and the, uh, as the ammonia concentration rises, then you increase the aeration. Um, and that is basically what aeration-based control is all about. It's using um, ammonia um, to, uh, uh, to control your DO set points uh, at different times during the day. Um, uh, interestingly, by switching to uh, ammonia-based control, you can achieve an additional savings, energy savings, of about 10 to 20% over uh, DO control. So a lot of times in a plant, you know, where they're kind of just getting into instrumentation, we're starting them off on DO and doing the dissolved oxygen types of control. And then, and then the plant, as they gain confidence in that, they start moving into narration or ammonia-based uh, control scheme. Um, now, with that scheme, you're going to need a lot more instruments. So you are going to need... Um, uh, oxygen, ammonias, and nitrates. Um, you're going to need a low-level ammonium at the end of the uh, process to verify that your uh, algorithms are working correctly. Uh, suspended solids is important because uh, um, in order to maintain a, a uh, and control this system, uh, understanding what your SRT and the food mass ratios are are very, very important. And then we're going to have some uh, handhelds here for doing spot checks throughout the process. And this is an example of uh, an ammonia-based system, a very simple ammonia-based system looking at ammonias uh, coming into each um, pass. You see kind of that pass one and two with recycling and the pass three and four together. So you've got your ammonia and DOs throughout um, this, uh, uh, this process. Now, um, this is an example of, uh, and we have a ton of these types of examples, but this is kind of showing a typical installation where we've got DOs, ammonias, and suspended solids. And the, the DO sensors are monitoring and allowing for this fine-tuning of aeration, and they're providing cost savings. Um, the ammonia sensors are allowing this trimming of the aeration. They're setting the set points. And the solids probes are uh, monitoring your mixed liquor suspended solids. Um, as, and that's really an indication of the amount of bugs that are in your, your uh, aeration basins. Um, in this example, we've got one controller, a 2020 controller that can have 20 sensors off of it. And then we're dropping uh, four ammonia sensors, eight DO sensors, and two suspended solids. And this is one system. You can see it going into four different basins um, and, uh, and all of the... Uh, um, hardware that's needed to make it work, your junction boxes, things like that. Um, I'm sorry, there was somebody calling me. Can you hear me all right? Everything fine? I can hear you, Steve. Okay, yeah. Somebody was disturbing me. All right, so um, uh, next we're looking at uh, um, solids uh, retention time, uh, sludge retention time, SRT. Um, uh, also different um, uh, ways this is recorded as sludge age. 
but basically it's a controlling strategy for managing the solids inventory in an activated sludge process. So uh, when you consider that what we're trying to control here is a biological process, um, there are two things that organisms need in order to function efficiently. They need oxygen and they need food. So we discussed the oxygen part of this, now we're discussing the food part of this. So uh, SRT is the number of days required by the bacteria to maintain their biomass in this activated flood system. And if you maintain a consistent SRT um, and you ensure this biomass so that the bacteria is stable and healthy, you're going to find that it's going to be much easier to control you on an ammonia-based control system um, uh, because everything is is is, uh, is is synchronized. You know, when you kind of, it's like one of those deals where you push down on one lever, another lever comes up. Here we're kind of managing the biomass in order to better manage the uh, aeration and the energy savings. Um, so uh, optical suspended solid sensors are used uh, to estimate current biomass within this activated sludge basin. And, um, and then we're also estimated on the, uh, um, we're using them to look at the solids um, on the return, your um, uh, return activated sludge or RAS as it's called. Um, so here's the equipment that, uh, that we're going to use. We're going to use solids probe. Um, and on this um, particular example, we've got, you know, a rail mount kit. Um, we also have uh, in the uh, RAS line a uh, retractable ball valve for the probe so we can put it, the, the sensor into a pressurized line and pull it out safely so when we need to clean it and do things like that. Oops. All right. So um, here's a typical layout of, a, um, of, a, of an SRT management system. You are uh, controlling and monitoring basically three measurements. Your mixed liquor in your aeration basin, your solids there, your solids on your RAS line, and we're going to put the flow. Um, and it's all part of this uh, aeration basin and the final clarifiers, the secondary clarifiers. Uh, this whole system is what we're looking at. Um, now, optionally, you can look at the sludge level height in that final clarifier to kind of better manage the thickness of the sludge so um, as it's coming through um, and uh, um, and being um, pumped out of the clarifier, you're not just getting more processed water return, you're actually getting sludge. So here is a um, an application um, uh, example, uh, one of the ones that we have done. In this particular case, it was a side-by-side -side trial, two-month evaluation um, uh, with a competitor. Uh, the solids probes were measuring solids in the aeration basins and the return activated sludge and um, mixed liquor in the aeration basin. And you can kind of see what that looks like um, in the um, in the ano anoxic and the uh, anaerobic cell and then in the oxic cells, as they were called uh, in this particular plant. And then over on the right, you can see what that ball valve looks like uh, mounted into a pipe. Um, uh, and uh, um, you can see it's it's quite robust. In this case, we've got a third-party saddle that was used um, uh, to help with the welding um, for the armatures. Um, but um, you can kind of see what that looks like. Very typical. Right. So next, we're we're moving into that secondary clarifier, and this is the process that's going to separate that biological flock 
from the treated water using gravity separation. So the solids are collected at the bottom and they're removed either through waste or returned back into the, uh, to, to the aeration basin. Um, clean water overflows the weirs uh, at the surface as the effluent stream. And uh, sludge level sensors can monitor that sludge level on the, on the um, inside of the clarifiers. Uh, and solids probes are used on the, um, uh, the, the waistline or the return line or in the actual effluent stream. Um, and, uh, and this is one of those examples where um, solids on the effluent stream could be used as kind of a um, indication of an upset condition, if you will. Um, so uh, in this case, we've got the solids probes, the uh, um, um, sludge blanket depth, and uh, we use a wireless communication module in this particular example, which um, is shown here. So we do have wireless modules. Sometimes these are really helpful on a clarifier um, because uh, they tend to be separated out pretty far, and maybe you don't want to run a lot of lines. You want to have a, a central receiver for all your clarifiers, bringing all, the, all those signals in and then running from there. Um, there are some examples, too, where clarifiers, where the catwalk actually rotates um, with the rake. Um, I've seen a few of these in the U.S. Uh, there, there's a lot in Europe, but um, a situation like that would almost demand to have a wireless module to make that work effectively. So here's an application example, uh, sludge uh, level height. Um, and uh, this is giving the operators reliable data to help them make process adjustments. Um, in this example, the sludge judge was not sufficient uh, due to a couple of reasons. And primarily in this case, it was because there was just a large number of clarifiers and it was uh, too time consuming to get an accurate sludge judge measurement on these, uh, on these uh, systems. So uh, the benefit here is that we can optimize our blanket depth. We can keep bugs in the aeration tanks. We can uh, thicken the sludge to minimize that waste volume. Um, and we can prevent the secondary release of um, phosphorus and also prevent floating, floating sludge. Um, and uh, we prevent solids carryover, uh, particularly important if you've got a tertiary plant. Um, and, um, uh, and we're reducing or eliminating the manual sludge judge sampling. So um, now we're kind of um, going back a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit more about biological nutrient removal. Uh, this is, again, part of the secondary treatment, which is uh, part of that aeration basin and secondary clarifier. Um, uh, basically, we are looking at, um, in a BNR process, we're looking at ammonias, and we're looking at um, ORP, ammonias, nitrate, phosphate, and solids as kind of the process control portion of this. Um, and uh, in this process, we are achieving um, nitrification and denitrification um, through, uh, uh, through a biological process. So we're looking at DOs um, in the anoxic. We're we need low DOs and we need a carbon source, well, BOD. And we have nitrate sensors that are going to monitor that nitrate in the anoxic zone. Um, and um, control the internal mixed liquor recirculation that's bringing that nitrate-rich water from the end of the aerobic back into the anoxic zone. And then we're controlling carbon dosing 
when necessary or if it's necessary. So in denitrification, we've got uh, nitrate analyzers, um, uh, solids, um, oxygen, ORP, and then um, some handhelds for spot checks. Here is a typical denitrification example. So um, uh, we're uh, showing all the instrumentation here, your DO, your, um, your nutrient probes, uh, and your nitrate probes. This particular example is a, um, a MLE, uh, which is a type of BNR. There are many types of BNR processes out there, um, and this is a typical one that you'll see. So in an example that we actually had, a denitrification example, a customer needed a reliable nitrate sensor to automate control of methanol. Um, the uh, nitroviz trialed with two other UV type of systems, and um, uh, the particular um, uh, process was a four-stage Ardenfo process, uh, and that's where you got a series of anoxic and aerobic zones. Um, and so the benefit here is we were able to earn a $300,000 credit from the state because we we're able to um, limit the discharge um, of, of nitrogen to below three parts per million. Um, there was a low maintenance and reliable sensors, so the operators really liked the system. There was a portability of a 2020 so they could look at um, what was happening at each, each section. Um, and then the uh, total solid um, option saved $4,000 um, uh, on a separate TSS probe. So uh, they're also better better control of their solids. Um, and then there was a supplemental air cleaning, and that was kind of cleaning the hairs and rags out of the system. So that's what the system had in it, um, nitrates and solids and then uh, uh, air. Now I'm going to pass it back over to Ben, and he's going to take us uh, from phosphorus removal to the end of the plant. So, Ben? All right. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I will need to take over presenter again. Have it. There we go. Okay. Excellent. All right, perfect. <clears throat> All right, so now on to my favorite subject, phosphorus removal. Enhanced biological phosphorus removal, or EBPR, requires the enhanced uptake of phosphorus by microorganisms called phosphorus accumulating organisms, or PAOs. This occurs within the activated sludge phase of the treatment process, which are then removed as a solid by settling. PAOs are conditioned to uptake high levels of soluble phosphorus by running through an anaerobic tank followed by an aerobic tank. An effective EBR system, EBPR system can reduce effluent phosphorus to below one milligrams per liter or even lower, but to achieve ultra-low effluent limits below 0.1 milligrams per liter, additional chemical removal or tertiary filtration can be used. The EBPR process can be monitored or controlled using measurements such as ORP, DO, COD, or BOD, 
orthophosphate, or volatile fatty acids, which we'll talk about a bit on the next slide. And this shows us what an, uh, what an eBPR process can look like. Starting with our anaerobic zone, our PAOs are getting stressed due to the lack of DO and nitrate, and this causes them to, the, to release all of their polyphosphate stores as a result. Here, we can use a carbovis to monitor the carbon within our anaerobic zone and get an estimation of the BOD to phosphorus ratio, which is a good indicator of whether your eBPR process will be effective. We could measure ORP here to ensure we are maintaining anaerobic conditions. And then in addition, lab equipment such as the Multilab for BOD or the Titraline for volatile fatty acids is a very useful, is very useful to ensure conditions are right for biological pea removal. Uh, volatile fatty acids, for instance, uh, cannot be measured with a sensor, but are still important to know because they, they are the preferred carbon source for the PAOs. After the anaerobic zone, the PAOs enter, PAOs enter the aerobic zone, where they can begin to metabolize energy stores with DO, reproduce more PAOs, and then store a large amount of phosphorus within their bodies. This drastically reduces the soluble phosphorus within the water. The water then moves on to the clarifier in which the PAOs are settled out, uh, and then they are wasted or returned to the anaerobic zone to reseed the activated sludge. The clean water moves to the effluent, which can then be monitored by uh, an ELISA uh, orthophosphate unit uh, to ensure we are within our uh, effluent limits. Now, chemical removal requires dosing a metal salt, such as alum or ferric, that binds to the soluble and particulate phosphorus, creating a solid flock, which can then be removed from the process by settling. A feedback or feedforward control system using the ELISA PO4 allows for precise control of chemical dosing, reducing excess chemical use and saving money for the, for the facility. Many facilities see a return on investment of one to two years when adding an, a YSI orthophosphate analyzer to their chemical removal process. Effluent monitoring is also a very common use for ELISA in chemical removal applications, or really all phosphorus removal systems. Although total, although total phosphorus is the compliance parameter, orthophosphate can provide an effective indicator for compliance as most of the phosphorus should be in the soluble form at this point of the process anyways. Here we have what a chemical removal system can look like. Some systems may have uh, different or multiple dosing points, but we will look at a particular application called simultaneous precipitation. Simultaneous precipitation begins by dosing your alum or ferric at the end of the aeration basins, which with enough mixing will bind to as much phosphorus as possible, soluble or particulate. The water then moves on to the clarifier in which the solids are settled out, taking the phosphorus with it. The clean water then moves on to the effluent stream in which an ELISA PO4 can measure orthophosphate and provide a feedback signal to SCADA or directly to the pump to increase or decrease dosing. And this is precisely what one facility did to save $23,000 in one year on their ferric chloride costs. Previously, they were dosing chemical based on orthophosphate grab samples in the morning and the afternoon, which let, which clearly led to a lot of overdosing. With the spread of phosphorus limits across the U.S. and uh, the continued reduction of existing limits in certain regions like the Great Lakes, 
the use of orthophosphate analyzers are increasing greatly. For the next treatment stage, we have the effluent treatment and monitoring. After secondary settling, the water is typically clear and almost ready to head out into the environment. However, there are still some things that need to happen before water can leave. First, a disinfection process using either UV or chlorine is used to deactivate any pathogenic organisms that are left in the water. UV transmittance, ORP, and free or total residual chlorine can be used to monitor the effectiveness of these processes and can be used to control the dosing. In addition, the effluent is usually the most important spot to monitor for your permit requirements. So this is a great spot for using multi-parameter probes or online PHDO and turbidity sensors. Let's take a closer look at UV disinfection. UV disinfection utilizes UV light to deactivate dangerous microorganisms like bacteria, viruses, and protozoa. When in contact with UV, these organisms become incapable of reproducing and infecting and infecting. Before reaching the final effluent, treated secondary effluent is run through channels containing UV light. UV systems are expensive to run at 100% output, so the UV dosage is adjusted based on the amount of organics within the water. Of course, our UV sensors have the capability of measuring organics within the, wa within the water with measurements such as COD and BOD. But most often, UVT-254 is used in UV applications for an, for an estimation of organics within the water, which can then be used to automatically adjust UV dosage to save energy and money. Now the measurement UVT-254, this is the percentage of light at 254 nanometers that is transmitted through the sample. High UVT percentage means the water is cleaner and requires less UV dosing. Low UVT percentage means the water has more biological contamination to absorb the light, requiring a higher UV dose. Our single wavelength UVT-254 sensors are extremely accurate, uh, calibrate easy with a reference measurement, and require infrequent cleanings. So they, we, they are uh, very successful in this application. And this is the typical UV disinfection setup. In the diagram to the left, we have our UV channel with water flowing through the UV banks, receiving their dose of UV. The UVT-254 sensor shown downstream of the UV system here provides the organic concentration in the water, which is, then is used to adjust the output of the UV system. Again, when you, have a higher percent, when you have a higher UVT percentage, this means you have cleaner water and you can output a lower UV dose. When you have a lower UVT percentage, the water is dirtier and has and requires a higher UV dose. One common question we get asked is where in the UV channel do you place a UVT-254 sensor? And the answer is simple. Anywhere that is not too close to the UV lamps, which causes uh, reading interferences. Upstream or downstream does not matter because the UVT percentage will be the same regardless. The key here is that UV light does not actually destroy microorganisms, but it just deactivates them meaning whether you go upstream or downstream of the, of the system, the same amount of organic content will be read by the UVT sensor. All right, on to our next application, chlorination and dechlorination. Chlorine is a very common method for disinfecting wastewater. 
Bacteria, viruses, and protozoans are killed by chlorine because it oxidizes their cell wall and other cellular structures, resulting in its death. The more chlorine you dose to a system, the more microorganisms that will be killed, and the lower your bacterial analysis will be for that MPDES permit. Chlorine and sufficient mixing is provided to the wastewater stream to begin the process. Enough chlorine, usually chlorine gas or hypochlorite, uh, must be added to achieve a total re chlorine residual, which actually disinfects the water. This point is sometimes called breakpoint chlorination, which is a bit too into the weeds for this webinar, uh, but if you want to learn more about chlorine disinfection, uh, uh, breakpoint chlorination is a good place to start. Now, total chlorine consists of two forms, free chlorine and combined chlorine. Free chlorine is formed when chlorine combines with pure water and is the most effective form of disinfection. Combined chlorine is created when chlorine combines with ammonia into several different forms of chloramines, such as monochloramine and dichloramine. Chloramines disinfect at a lower rate, but do also have some benefits, such as fewer disinfection byproducts, and then also has a better taste and smell. Excess chlorine is dangerous to aquatic life, so it is essential to not only chlorinate enough to achieve proper disinfection. Um, IQ SensorNet instrumentation like Sensolit ORP sensors or the 3017M chlorine DPD analyzer can help control the chlor chlorination process to be as efficient as possible with chlorine dosing. In wastewater, the water is usually treated with sodium bisulfate to dechlorinate the water ensuring the effluent does not have enough chlorine to harm the environment. So let's take a look at this SCADA view of a real facility's disinfection process. The beginning of the process begins in the top left where we have a few measured variables like flow, ammonia, and UVT percentage. Next, we have a mixing chamber in which sodium hypochlorite is added for disinfection. The facility uses ORP to control their chlorine dosing so they have an ORP set point. In this case, 500, 504 millivolts uh, is the set point, and then we have a current value of 434 millivolts. The water then makes its way through the contact bases and eventually to dechlorination, which is also ORP controlled. The system doses SBS or sodium bisulfate and maintains a set point of 129 millivolts in which we are currently measuring 134. And then finally, water heads to the effluent in which this facility uh, was measuring temperature, DO, ammonium, and pH. If we were to control this process using a 3017M DPD chlorine analyzer, we would likely want to measure free, uh, measure free and total chlorine residual after the contact basins. That way we could provide a feedback signal to control the sodium hypochlorite. And then we would also know how much sodium bisulfite to dose for disinfection or I'm sorry, dechlorination. One additional type of process that can be used is tertiary treatment. A tertiary treatment process is usually used to reduce a specific pollutant to ultra low levels or to further disinfect the water. This is usually done for water reuse applications or in specific applications when you want to achieve ultra low BOD, TOC, turbidity, TSS, uh, total phosphorus, or nitrogen. Some common types of tertiary treatment are ozone, reverse osmosis, and tertiary fil filtration, among many others.
Water reuse is the use of treated municipal wastewater in one of several defined applications, each with their own set of water quality standards, including urban reuse, agricultural reuse, environmental, and even pot uh, potable water reuse. There are different requirements for each type of reuse, and these are usually defined by state agencies, but they usually require at least secondary treatment, tertiary filtration, and disinfection processes. One example of the water reuse requirement are below. These are potable water reuse requirements from Florida in which you need to have BOD levels below 20 milligrams per liter, TSS below five, uh, pH between six and nine, uh, TOC below three milligrams per liter, uh, no detectable total coliforms, and total nitrogen below 10 milligrams per liter. So pretty strict as you can imagine. YSI instrumentation is frequently used in water reuse applications as our sensors remain quite accurate down to these low concentrations. For BOD, we have our multi-lab for benchtop and our carbovis for online B or for BOD, um, the carbovis for a online BOD measurement. Uh, Visolid and a visoturb for TSS and turbidity. Uh, turbidity is another commonly used requirement that's not on here. Um, that is used for water reuse, which commonly requires something below 2 NTU. pH, of course, uh, we have our online and handheld options. Uh, for TOC, we do have a wet chemistry analyzer option in the 9210P from OI Analytical, and then the CarboVis again. And for total nitrogen, the online variant sensor, which measures both ammonium and nitrate as an ISE, uh, we have the ELISA wet chemistry uh, ammonium analyzer, and then the NitroVis or our UV nitrate, which is our UV nitrate sensor. Okay, so now let's take a look at our final process step, the effluent. The effluent is where facilities should be monitoring for compliance with their MPDES permits. These permits vary by state in the body of water being discharged into. Portable lab and online instrumentation is important to ensure your facility is compliant with your permits. Although portable and lab instruments are most frequently used to monitor effluent streams, online sensors are increasingly being used because you get the 24-7 data, the ability to alarm, to alarm if you reach a particular threshold, and you'll be able to sleep nicely at night knowing that if anything major goes wrong, you will know right away. As for, permit, as for permitting, there are, so, are several monitoring options out there. So I pulled up a typical N, uh, MPDES permit uh, from an urban location in Ohio, which actually happens to be the closest facility to my house. Uh, for BOD, they require be, uh, below eight to 20 milligrams per liter, depending on the season. For TSS, they require 16 to 30 milligrams per liter, depending on the season again. A pH of 6.5 to nine, uh, dissolved oxygen above uh, above seven milligrams per liter. Um, this plant is only required to monitor their total P, but often plants, especially those discharging into freshwater bodies, can have total phosphorus limits from one milligram per liter uh, down to even below 0 0.1 milligrams per liter. And then finally, this plant has a changing ammonia uh, limit depending on the time of year between one and 3.7 milligrams per liter. In comparison to water reuse requirements, these aren't as strict, uh, but still require a well-operating plant to reach. So now let's take a look at an effluent monitoring application uh, for online instrumentation. 
This particular customer wanted to measure DO, pH, and turbidity with online sensors at, at their effluent, but was not able to directly connect with, this, with their PLC because the effluent of this particular plant was quite far, uh, uh, was a long distance away from the nearest PLC cabinet. Instead, they decided to use a cloud-based telemetry system to remotely monitor these parameters and send the values back to their SCADA for alarming. This type of system, again, allows for 24-7 monitoring of the effluent. They can alarm if, anything, if any problems occur. It also makes it so an operator doesn't have to go out several times a day for a grab sample all the way out to the effluent. And that's it. Uh, don't forget that we have a bunch of great material on our website that can help you learn about wastewater instrumentation, such as our newest, app, newest application note about solid retention time, or the most recent, recent blog post, uh, five questions to ask when selecting a UV or UV-Viz sensor. Feel free to reach out to Steve, Shannon, or I with any questions you may have about instrumentation uh, or their applications. So thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we hope you learned something new today about IQ SensorNet sensors and the wastewater process. And with that, I'll send it back over to Shannon uh, to see if we have any questions. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so we'll open it up for questions here. I only had a few come in during the webinar. Um, so if you have any questions, go ahead and ask those now. Um, ben, we can start. This one's for you. Um, can you please address mm -hmm. mounting and orientation of the UVT sensor in a UV channel? Um, influence okay. of turbulence and trained air, grease, et cetera. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll pull back up this slide here. Um, so there's several different mounting options um, as far as uh, this particular one is a swing and chain mount. Uh, so the chain hangs down and the, the sensor hangs uh, freely. And we typically like it to be, uh, it's not necessarily super important, but we typically hang it horizontal. Um, Many customers uh, have usually, they can have higher flows, uh, so a little bit more turbulence. In that case, you wouldn't want to swing and chain mount. So we do have uh, plenty of applications where we um, have a rigid uh, stainless steel pole mount in which we attach the center, sensor vertically, and that sticks down into the channel uh, on the side. So uh, really, there's, there's a lot of options. It depends on, the, again, the turbulence, you don't want to you don't want to chain mount if it's very turbulent, um, but yes, there's there's several options out there um, for whatever whatever or whatever uh, whatever situation the customer has. Okay, um, this one's for Steve, and um, we may have to get back uh, to the asker on this. But what do you see trending for measurement? at high-strength industrial customer points of discharge to the sanitary network? Well, that's uh, a difficult question to ask, answer because it uh, depends on the industry. So um, usually with uh, like a food production, dog food, um, human food, things like that, I see solids and BOD as being primary. Um, for uh, um, chemical, uh, things like that. It's generally pH connectivity that you're looking at um, primarily. But if you want to send me an email about something more specific you're looking at, I'd be glad to address that. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, 
Can online instrumentation be used for permit compliance? Yeah. Uh, maybe. So, yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <I guess maybe. laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Steve. I was, I was going to say, well, it depends on the pan parameter, right? So pH is pH, so that can be used um, to report. Um, the 3017 is a DPD analyzer uh, based off of standard methods. Um, other parameters like ammonias, no, because the reportable way to do ammonias is through a gas sensing detector in a lab and solids. The reportable way to do that is is through a laboratory um, uh, drying and weighing method. So it really kind of depends on the parameter. Uh, some are reportable and some aren't. Okay, um, we have another question here. Um, so someone has a pro swap at their plant, and it says if you add the weight to the end of the sensor, does that affect the depth sensor? Uh, I believe Hi. with – oh, go ahead. <laughs> Hi, this is Laura St. Pierre. No, that does not uh, affect the depth reading or the depth sensor. That weight is just to help with um, – it actually helps to let it go down in a straight profile. Uh, sinkability, we like to call it. Uh, so it doesn't sway and drift. So you're, you know, going out, say, uh, out sideways instead of down. <clears throat> so it does not affect the depth sensor. And uh, regarding EPA compliance, we have a reference document um, that mentions what parameters are reportable based on the technology uh, that we can provide as well. So Steve was right. I ended up saying something. <laughs> he, he is only I knew right. it. <laughs> okay, we've got another question here. Uh, can the wireless modules be used for multiple sensors back to a central controller? Yes. Uh, so the wireless modules, uh, you can have several. You either have a, uh, um, I guess I like to call them uh, uh, primaries and secondaries. The primaries are the receiver of a signal and the secondaries send a signal. You can have multiple secondary wireless modules sending to a single primary module. So yes, you can have, uh, I believe it might be four um, wireless modules that can be sent to a single location. Um, so it's a, it's a good way to eliminate a lot of cabling uh, in a plant. Okay, um, do we have any more questions? It looks like that's about it for what came in so far. Um, there might be a few that we'll need to address after the webinar. We will follow up with you if you're up with you, if your question wasn't answered. And I think that's the end of the webinar. Uh, we do have a short four-question survey that will launch at the end. Your feedback is always very, very important to us, so please um, take a minute to fill that out. We'd appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, we hope you found this training webinar useful. And, again, reach out to Ben, Steve, or myself, Shannon, um, with any questions. 
and have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.